They called themselves Freedom Riders. An integrated group of young civil rights activists decided to confront the racist practices in the Deep South by traveling together by bus from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans, Louisiana. Raymond Arsenal documents their trip in his book, Freedom Riders, 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice. He says many elder civil rights leaders denounced their strategy as a dangerous provocation that would set back the cause. But the members of the Congress of Racial Equality who came up with this idea and the young activists were absolutely determined that they were going to force the issue, that they, they, had, to, they had to fight for freedom now, not, not freedom later, that they, someone had to take the struggle out of the courtroom and, and into the streets, even if, even if it meant, uh, meant death for for some of them, they were willing to die to make this point. The group boarded a Greyhound bus in Washington, D.C. on May 4th. They planned to stop and organize others along the way until they reached their destination on May 17th. Like Martin Luther King Jr. and other prominent civil rights activists of the day, the Freedom Riders were trained in the techniques of nonviolent direct action developed by the Indian leader Mahatma Gandhi. Arsenal says that for some of them, nonviolence was a deeply held philosophy. For others, it was a tactic to win public support for their struggle. Part of what they did, of course, is they dressed very well, almost like they were going to church, and and they're, they're, they were absolutely committed to not striking back and being polite. And uh, to contrast, of course, their behavior with the what they saw as the white thugs who might very well attack them, and of course did. The Freedom Riders were taunted and attacked throughout the South. John Lewis, now a U.S. congressman, was badly beaten in South Carolina. Worse trouble awaited the Freedom Riders in Birmingham, Alabama, where white supremacists beat the riders with clubs and chains while police looked on. In Anniston, Alabama, a mob surrounded the bus, slashed its tires, and firebombed it on a lone stretch of highway outside of town. In interviews culled from a new documentary tied to Arsenal's book, these Freedom Riders recall how they narrowly escaped death. I can't tell you if I walked off the bus or if I crawled off or someone pulled me off. When I got off the bus, a man came up to me, and I'm coughing and strangling. He said, boy, you all right? And I nodded my head, and the next thing I knew, I was on the ground. He had hit me with a baseball bat. People were gagging, and they were crawling around on the ground. They were trying to get the smoke out of their chest. It was just an awful, 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 awful scene. It was horrible. It was like a scene from hell. It was, it was the worst suffering I'd ever heard. The Freedom Riders, many of them injured, chose to fly the rest of their journey to New Orleans. However, activists in Nashville, Tennessee, immediately organized their own Freedom Ride through Alabama and Mississippi. They felt that failing to continue the effort would hand a victory to the segregationists who wanted to intimidate them. Like many of her fellow Nashville Freedom Riders, Catherine Burks Brooks, a black college student, decided to leave school to make the trip. This was more important at that time to a number of us in Nashville. We knew that if we lived, we could uh, go back to school. And then if we died, it would make any difference. We didn't know whether we were going to live or die. But we knew this was something that we had to do. 
The Kennedy administration feared that more violence would embarrass the president at a Cold War summit with Soviet Premier Khrushchev later that month. A deal was struck with the Mississippi authorities. Police officers would protect the rioters from attack, but would be empowered to arrest them for violating state laws. Joan Mulholland, a white freedom writer who was 19 at the time, was thrown into the state penitentiary along with other activists. So we were charged with breach of peace, which was not on the face of it segregation law, but was used to enforce segregation by saying that our very presence and actions could cause other people to become violent. So we were charged with breaking the peace by upsetting people. Such treatment galvanized the national civil rights movement. Sixty Freedom Rides headed south from around the country, forcing the issue of segregation into national focus. The momentum of the civil rights movement increased through sit-ins, voter registration drives, legal advocacy, and demonstrations. It led to stronger anti-discrimination laws and their enforcement. Raymond Arsenault says the writers are an inspiring example to those who want to change the world today. All of us, uh, regardless of where we live in the world, have moments where we shrug our shoulders and say, what, what can I do? What can we do? Uh, we're overwhelmed by these powerful socioeconomic forces that uh, seem to control our lives. And the Freedom Rides is a classic example that demonstrates the power of individuals to change the, the course of history, that it's, it's not just so-called people in power who are controlling institutions. Uh, there's a lot of historical agency that people can, can grasp. So the Freedom Rides, I think, reminds us that there have been people who have stepped up at these critical moments and have changed all of our lives and that, that we can do that too. 50th anniversary commemorations of the 1961 Freedom Rides will be held throughout the spring and summer, including the 2011 Student Freedom Ride, in which young people, black and white, will board buses in Washington, D.C. to follow the path of that first ride, spreading the message of civil rights. Adam Phillips, VOA News, New York.